0: Ministry this morning that we pray is lifted to our God as we behold him together, Westmount. And let's continue that gaze. Let's do that. In Romans, grab your copy of God's word. Turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. We endeavor to continue where we left off before Christmas and more this morning as we really come to. It's nexus here in this letter. So, Romans chapter 11. Well, <clears throat> Murray Pantyrer and Abraham Zuckerman, I give you those two names this morning, are two men that were grateful men. Grateful men. As Jews, both of them were Jews, both lived during World War II and escaped certain death in the Holocaust that killed millions of Jews. Murray and Abraham were grateful because they had survived the ethnic slaughter at evil hands because of the work and the efforts of one man, and you may know him, his name is Oscar Schindler. He saved many, of course, during World War II. His efforts led to the saving of countless as Murray and Abraham's later life testimonies would attest, they were grateful for the character of the man, a character that stood out during World War II, and they were grateful for all of his efforts, all that he enabled them to have and to do going forward. What the man and the work of Schindler gave them soon became apparent as Murray and Abraham not only survived the Holocaust, but later in their life they would prosper After the war, Murray and Abraham immigrated to the United States and set up a construction firm. From the beginning of their post-war life, they knew they had to respond to Schindler. Murray remembers it this way, I quote him fully. When we started the business, remember their construction firm business, when we started the business, our first subdivision was in South Plainfield, New Jersey. The first thing we did was put his name on a street, Schindler Drive. From then on, every project that we had, we put in the name Oscar Schindler. Sometimes people would say, who is this? And when we told them, they didn't care. They would say, we want to live on a street with an English name, a French name. But Abraham and I didn't pay any attention. End quote. For Murray and Abraham, there were no limits to their ascribing tribute to Schindler. Their business quickly blossomed, and soon there were more complexes in New Jersey. And with more complexes came more tributes and more opportunities to show honor. Schindler Street, Schindler Drive, Schindler Way, soon over 25 roads, each bearing the word, the name they could never forget. Even more, these men contributed to the construction of various Jewish and Holocaust museums while providing numerous, numerous bursaries and scholarships. Each scholarship, each road, each museum, all bearing the word, the name, Schindler. For Murray and Abraham, the word Schindler was a glorious word. For Murray and Abraham, as they considered Oscar and their new life, There was no other fitting response. I think we get that, right? There couldn't be none other. How could they not ascribe words of honor to this man? Such a response, Westmount, is a small picture of what we will see in our return to Romans today. And as we return, let us be reminded of our great God. We sung of him and his great gospel work in this letter and study. The book of Romans, open before you as we've seen, presents to us the gospel of God, chapter 1, verse 1. Specifically recall with me the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel of God, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first, then the Greek. This letter has covered, what have we studied, beloved, First, mankind's need for such salvation. Survey with me. Chapter 1, we are by nature suppressors of truth. As such, handed over and given up to ourselves. That's what we learned, right? Thus all humanity, rightly hell-bound, incapable of self-saving, naturally humanity is hopeless. Romans chapter 2, we learn that some humanity feign it. Some humanity play morality in this life. Recall the moralists, the decent actors, the legalists, like the Jews, doing law works. However, as we learned, neither the decent actors or the law workers will be okay. This letter has taught us, Romans chapter 3, what? None are right for God. We are all unfit. There is none righteous, no, not one. Chapter 3, 10. None means none. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Chapter three twenty three, All humanity falls short, is totally depraved, and thus in desperate need of eternal salvation. It's bad news. But then as we turn in chapter 4, which we opened one year ago today, we saw good news. That one could be made right with God, not through decency or works, but by faith. Faith like Abraham, faith in the word and work of God, faith that was faith counted to one like Abraham as righteousness. Chapter four twenty two. Now we learned also this was not just token belief in God. Not at all. As many profess lip service Christianity today. It's not that. This is belief that contains, embedded in it, the conviction of chapters 1, 2, and 3. What's the conviction? As Jerry reminded us this morning, I am nothing. I have nothing to offer God. No righteousness of my own. If that's not your conviction, you may not know God. And then the belief in the only one that could do anything and everything. That's why we're here, beloved, aren't we? All Him, not us, may it always be so. Jesus Christ, the new Adam. We studied Him in chapter 5. Jesus and His new humanity. Jesus Christ, in Him we have peace with God. Beloved, in Him you have peace with God. Chapter 5, verse 1. New representation, a new head. Saving faith believes that Christ took on our sin because we needed it and imputed his righteousness to us. The Christian believes that with conviction. That's called the great exchange. That is the basis and the content of our great salvation. And our great salvation, of course, gives way to our great sanctification. Chapter 6, 7, and 8, salvation lived out. Again, it's known as sanctification. That process of progressively being set apart. Chapter 6, we looked at the ownership transfer. We were slaves, card-carrying slaves to sin and all. Ownership, transfer to righteousness in Christ. Chapter 7, we looked at the struggle, the transfer, the position is secure, but we're living in this piece of unredeemed flesh. We're out of Adam, but still with a piece of Adam. And then in Romans 8, we reach the summit, remember? Remember? Our new life summed up with this. We can never say this enough. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Beloved, no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Personally, for each of us, Westmount, it could have stopped there and we would say what? What glory for each of us personally. However, it's more than us. Paul set the table for something much greater than individual salvation. In chapter 8.18, the Apostle turned to consider the glory that is to be revealed to us. This, remember, was not just eager longing for our own glorified body. It contains that for sure, for sure. But let's recount, this is inward spirit groaning for the entire creation's renewal. And the vehicle for that cosmic renewal was, of course, the nation of Israel. And that was our study this past fall in Romans nine, ten, and 11. God's plan to redeem humanity through a piece of humanity, Israel. This was articulated clearly going all the way back to the beginning with Abraham. This has always been the plan. Listen again, Genesis twelve three: In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, blessing by the way of the olive tree, which you looked at, whose seed. Remember, we looked at this, the seed of the olive tree, all the way back in Genesis 3, verse 15 seed of the woman. And that tree whose root was the patriarchs, the first of the righteous remnant, a remnant preserved, as we saw in Romans 9, against what? An unrighteous majority. That's always been true in Israel. To this day, the majority is unrighteous. A rebellious Israel whose rejection of Jesus led to the inclusion of the Gentiles. Yes, the plan of God none could foresee or would ever plan themselves. God using the stumbling of Israel to call and include the Gentiles to salvation. And in Romans 10, remember this with me, that call to salvation we saw was to go out now to both Jew and Greek. Recall the global magnitude of Romans 10. Listen to 12 and 13 again in that chapter. It says this, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amazing. Yet, Westmount, that global scope in this age, does not mean that God has rejected Israel. We talked about this. Many would think so. No, not at all. Consider Romans 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Has God rejected Israel? Because it sure seems so. Whether in the pages of Scripture or on the pages of the news, it sure seems so. And what's the answer? Verse 1, by no means. By no means. Verse 25 of the 11th chapter. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and it doesn't stop there. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Yes. Remember, Israel's full acceptance of Messiah means what? Life from the dead. You remember that? Life from the dead. This is the terminus here of God's salvation plan. Recall with me, the gospel of God, then, is not a personal plan for you and me to be saved. Let us not make it that in our study of Romans. No, the gospel of God, as we've now learned in this study, is life from the dead for you, for me, for us, the church, Israel, the entire cosmos, all Renewed and alive. Beloved, God's plan, and please, we have to repeat this because we need to truly grasp it. God's plan is for the cosmos to be set back right. For creation to return to the design and the way it was intended to be. That's the plan of God. It is so much bigger than you and me. For God to set it right. And I will repeat the application I repeated in the fall, and I think we need to hear it on this day with all that's going on. Beloved, this is what you want. You don't just want a personal little bubble of your life going right. You want everything right, don't you? You want everything. You want righteous rule. You want goodness to flow. You want the whole world to finally sing with us praise and hallelujah to our God. That's what you want. So don't bring the gospel down to just your best life now. Don't do that. The entire cosmos set right. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel of God in Romans. Our glorious God and his glorious plan. Now, Westmount, pause with me as we recalibrate this new year. How do you respond to that? What do you say to that right now? What are you thinking right now? How do you respond to that? What words are fitting for such a plan? In light of chapters 1 through 11, what do you say to that? Let's return to the inerrant, inspired, holy word and consider Paul's response in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has been who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him. And to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Father, we pray that this response would be our response. Lord, we confess our hearts fall so short in this response, Lord. So help us by way of this study this morning to get there. By your enablement, we pray. Christ's name. Men. Glory words, or a doxology, as such passages are called, and that's just simply what the word means. Doxa and logos together, glory words in its most simple form. These are words of response immediately following rich and immense theology. That's simply what it is. If you are familiar with Paul's letters, you're familiar with other doxologies, are you not? You find some of these doxologies at the beginning of Paul's letters. In fact, turn to 1 Timothy 1. Let's look at 1. We need to see the context of these doxologies, as they're helpful. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul opens this letter to his young protege, Timothy. And here, he, as he does often, and we see in the New Testament, unveil his testimony, and he says this. Verse 12, let's pick it up. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Note that. This is his testimony to who he was. He continues, verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then he pauses for this confession, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He's not just confessing who he was. He recognizes this is what Jesus does. He takes wretched men like me and he saves them. Verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. And then this. Paul, how do you respond to your testimony? To the king of kings, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. In other words, as I recount my testimony, says Paul, I can only give glory words to God. How, how can I say anything else? I give glory to him. So some doxologies are found at beginning of letters that open letters and here, flowing out of a testimony that Paul has given. Some testimonies are found after profound sections, like the one we're in right now in Romans 11. Consider also Ephesians. You can turn there, Ephesians 3. Look at one in the middle of a letter. Also coming on the heels of a profound section in Ephesians 3, where Paul has just worked through, if we were to go back to chapter 3, work through the argument flowing out of chapter 2, what he's done for Jew and Gentile, the hostility has come down, and now in the church together as one group of called-out ones, and now this prayer for spiritual strength in chapter 3, because he's the God, he is the ambassador to the Gentiles. He says this, for this reason, verse 14, I bow my knees before the Father. He goes on to say, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. What majestic plans. If you were to keep reading, he goes all the way down to verse 20. And he says this, in light of all that he has to say about the plan of God in the church, now to him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That doxology coming from another plan of God, that God would be working in Jew and Gentile, working in the church, that God gives strength. Paul here, like he did with his testimony Here again, with the plan of God and the church, can only respond in doxology. Some are found to close the letters, and we're going to see this again in Romans 16 later, when we close and are there. You also see it at the end of Philippians, and 2 Timothy. In fact, listen to the one at the end of Philippians, chapter 4, verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. That doxology, those glory words, are a response to the great providing God. This is what we aim to do before we sit down to eat, and hopefully after we eat, and hopefully at all times. We give praise, and we respond with glory words to the great provider. This is what Paul does here. So thinking of our great salvation, thinking about the great plan of God, thinking about daily provision, we can only respond in doxology, as we see here. And these doxologies serve as fitting and appropriate responses to God and His work. Now on that point, as we turn back and return to Romans this morning, we need to make a few opening comments with respect to doxology, and especially this, especially this, our response to God as it dovetails with our study. The number one, we would say this, by way of opening, this doxology here, look at it in verses 33 to 36, this doxology is the exact opposite of the response you saw in chapter 1 isn't it in fact turn to chapter 1 what what did you see in chapter 1 by way of responding to God and his work and even his work in creation recall chapter 1 verse 18 what was humanity's response there for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men where their unrighteousness suppress the truth and here it is this is what God has done For what can be known about God is plain to them. Here's God's word, because God has shown it to them. Generally in Revelation, he's made it plain. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. In other words, to respond to God rightly, there is no excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him. Think at that, they did not honor, and think response, as God, or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. We can stop there. So what's the response we see in chapter 1? Verse 21, they knew God, and although they did, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. That's not a doxology, right? That's the exact opposite of a doxology, It's not the response that we see in chapter 11, as we turn back there. Doxology is a right response to God, which we can do now with Paul because of the gospel of God, right? Now, finally, we can respond as we ought to. As we ought to. So that's one. Two. This doxology, like the rest in the New Testament, this is so important, beloved. This doxology is informed by Scripture. You see that? We're going to see this more in a moment. It's informed by Scripture. You say, well, why is that important? Let's be clear on what it is not. And this will help, I think. This is not physical words. This is not Paul going through Romans 1 through 11 and saying, you know what, I feel good. Man, wasn't that good to hear that. Yeah, God is good, isn't he? He doesn't say that. It's not presumptuous words. How many presumptuous words do we have, beloved? God, I am yours now. I am sold out to you. I just heard a good word. Beloved, that's flesh. This doxology is informed by Scripture. And beloved, I pressed the point this morning because we all fall into this trap, don't we? Giving praise in flesh, not the Spirit. We respond according to Scripture. Paul's response, look at it with me. Don't take my word for it. Look at the text. Paul's praise, Paul's doxology, can you find Paul in it? No. It has nothing to do with Paul at all, does it? Not what he's going to do, how he's going to give back to God, not all these wondrous things he feels. It's all God all the time. Paul's doxology, look at it, beloved, is filled with Scripture. In fact, we're going to see this in a moment. Old Testament words of God, in fact. Thirdly, this doxology rests and rejoices in who God is. Now listen, it doesn't rest in what Paul understands. Did you catch that? These glory words are not words of frustration or a befuddled overflow. No. Paul does not close this majestic section of waxing the tension between God's sovereignty, chapter 9, and man's responsibility, chapter 10, and how they comprise God's plan, chapter 11. No. Paul does not say, look at it, look at verse 33. Paul doesn't say, oh, the depth of information here. That Jacob I loved, Esau I hated thing, Ah, oh, I just can't get over that. Paul doesn't say, and what about Pharaoh, raising up Pharaoh? Man, I just I can't do anything else until I understand Pharaoh. No, Paul rests in a God. We'll see that he recognizes he cannot possibly know fully. Brother and sister, do you. Do you? Or do you put your praise on hold figuratively until you can understand all of God? I might submit to you this morning as 2024 begins, this is the beginning of your problem. You will never understand the ways of God and praise God, right? Rest in him. We sang it. Ken read it. Behold your God. You will never know him. But I need to understand why. What? No. Behold your God. Behold your God. Rest in who God is, not what your finite mind understands. Beloved, I might say to you, listen, my family and many of you in here know, as the foremost of sitting in this way, don't do that. Don't rest in what you think you understand about God. There is no peace there. Never. Rest in who he is. And who he is. Listen, now will caveat to that. Paul rests in a God that he doesn't know fully. This doesn't mean we worship an unknown God, right? That's not what we're saying. I think you know that. We're not worshiping an unknown God. Oh, my God, I can't pers- possibly know you. Or that we can't know anything of him. No, he's revealed himself. And it's incumbent on us to worship in line with what he's revealed to us. It means what we do know, what has been revealed. Deuteronomy 29.29 is more than enough. Isn't it, beloved? It's more than enough. To respond to God rightly and with words of glory. And in fact, it should amplify our praise. Have you ever thought about that? Has not God revealed enough to you? And to know that there's just so much more? That takes your praise to the third heaven, doesn't it? To know that I can't possibly understand. I'm praising God for this finite thing I know. And yet there's so much more that's good. Oh, it's so good. Such is doxology. Words of praise ascribing glory to our great and mighty God. Again, remember, we rest in who he is, not what we understand. So with that, we're ready to look at these glory words. And they are just a few, fittingly, as we close this section. In Westmont, they present straightforwardly. So simply two headings as we close chapter 11. First, our infinite God. Look at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. Beloved, this is a verse, look at it with me again, that demonstrates how low our considerations of God are at times. Do you not feel that? Man, we bring our considerations of God low. And I'm not saying this because we talk like this. This text begs this question. Do you think like this? Do you think like this? Do you consider the immensity, the infinity of God? And do you rest there? Or is your response to the gospel of God, God's person in Christ, his work, is your response an initial burst of gladness that gives way to subtle indifference? Maybe it's low thought these days. Maybe these days, with the circumstances around you, it's no thought. You say, Jason, I have enough on my plate already. Do you consider the depths of the riches of God? Turn to to chapter 2. The riches of God. What's been our study? Look at chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Beloved, have you considered the riches of God's kindness, his forbearance, his patience with you? Have you meditated in this new year yet? That you were once like Paul. That for many of us, we could say to you, Paul, hey, 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 I get that you think you were the foremost of sinners, but you have nothing on me. Have you meditated on the forbearance of God to say, I will bear with your filth and wickedness, and I will not let you go. Have you meditated on those riches this year? Oh my, what praise can flow from that. Turn to chapter 9. What of the riches of God? Look at verse, let's start in 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his powers, endured with much patience? There it is. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, purpose, in order to make known the riches of his glory. For vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory. Not only sinful, foremost of sinners were we once Christian, but now, once wicked sinners, headed for where? Glory. Glory to a place you and I don't deserve. Have you thought about that recently? That's the riches of God, to take sinners and place them in a place they don't deserve. What about chapter 10? Turn there, look at it with me. Verse 12. Amazing stuff here. How about this? There's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. And then verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No exclusivity here, right? This is anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, not just the Jew. Anyone in the cosmos who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. These are the riches of God. Saints, these are the inexhaustible riches actually of God found in Christ. There is no end to them. Do you consider the wisdom and knowledge of God, not just the riches and the depths of those riches? Have you, this year, considered the wisdom and knowledge of God? Consider what we heard this morning and what we've sung this morning. Listen, church, the wisdom and knowledge found in God's great plan of salvation is something no human being could ever have considered. Have you thought about that? Let alone conceived. I mean, I begin where Jerry left off. Glory and suffering. Would you devise that? Glory and suffering, the whole plan. It would be suffering, suffering, and glory from the ashes. None of us would draw up a plan for God, the God, to sacrifice his own son. No mere mortal would author a plan where not only does that son die, but that son of God dies a death of humiliation, facing scorn and shame. None of us would draw that up. Further, no human would say, wouldn't it be something... If God's Son not only suffered the worst possible human death, but in that death, how about this, bear his own wrath. No earthly creature would devise a plan where, through that wrath-bearing, humiliating death, that same God would bring salvation to an undeserving people. What man or woman would craft a plan that said, let us start with a chosen people, and let them rebel against their king, And then through their disobedience, let's redeem people from all nations. And then, yes, yes, let's say this. After that, through the nations responding rightly to God, then the undeserving chosen rebels, well, they'll get salvation too. In fact, the whole plan is based on this premise. Let's create a plan where people get what they don't deserve. In fact, you lived a week this week, so did I, where you didn't live by that economy, did you? whether you shout your fist in the air at people that should get what they deserve, or you lived in a way where you felt it should be that way. Beloved, no one under the sun could ever conceive of such a plan, right? Behold your God. Such is God, right? Verse 33, his judgments are unsearchable, his ways inscrutable. Westmont, God's judgments and ways have always been well beyond us. And by the way, this is nothing new. This is what Isaiah declared. Listen to Isaiah 55. Verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. The salvation in view. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And then what's the context of that call to Salvation. Go about all the judgments you read in the prophets. Verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth. So are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. There it is. Our infinite God and his ways, not just to ancient Israel, but the church today. Listen to 1 Corinthians. As they flirted with the wisdom of man. Listen to this, Paul, speaking to the Corinthians in his first letter, I'm just going to read you a portion in chapter 1, verse 18. Well, what of it? Verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. I was struck, by the way, I just need to pause as Jerry was leading us at the table. It's just, I mean, this is unfiltered, but I would just say it anyone walking through that door while we partook of the Lord's table, what would they think? You're taking little cups and remembering a man brutalized on a piece of wood and cursed, and you're going to collectively bow your heads and remember him? Foolishness. Foolishness. But it is the power of God for us, is it not? You and I stand, beloved, because of that. Do we not? And so he goes on, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And he goes on, this is what we're talking about, beloved. We cannot know God and the world certainly can't. We only can by way of the spirit, the portion put into each one of us, right? The world can't know And that's why they don't, by the way. God is beyond full comprehension. Listen, if he's beyond full comprehension for you and I with a portion of the Spirit, how much more for them who are dead in their trespasses and sins? God has no end that we can find it. This was the mistake God's ancient people made, like fearful Israel and suffering Job. It's precisely why Paul takes us to both of those contexts. Romans 11.34, let's look at the first one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? That's a reference to Isaiah 40, verse 13, even as we sung portion of that this morning already. A verse that's in a chapter in Isaiah that kicks off the second half of Isaiah's letter. And many of you know the first half, focusing on the coming judgment, the Babylonian arrival. But in Isaiah 40, the prophet presents a majestic sweep of who Israel's God is. Let's consider just a portion. I'm going to read to you starting in verse 10. Listen. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And then this. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure? and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills and about. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? And it goes on. In fact, he went to the end of the chapter, verse 27. It would say this. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding, here it is, is unsearchable. That's what Paul wants to take us to and remind us of. The same God back in Israel, right? That Isaiah said you cannot comprehend him is still true today. More revelation doesn't mean, well, I know more and I wouldn't respond that way. More revelation means more praise, That's what it should mean. How much more? How much more? That's not it. In fact, as we consider the next verse, look at verse 35. It says this, Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? That expression, also from the Old Testament, taken from Job 41, and that's a context we're familiar with already this morning. Ken read Job 38, that magnificent final portion of the book of Job. The first chapter he read for us in a section of God's rebuke to Job. Do you remember that? Remember, not just rebuking the three friends. In one sense, it's a direct rebuke of Job, the righteous and blameless one. Again, if we had more time, we'd expound that and talk through that. But let's just be reminded of a portion of where Paul is going to. I'm going to read from you Job 41, 9-11. It says, this is the context Paul wants to take us to in the rebuke. Behold, verse 9, 41, the hope of a man is false. He's laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? And then verse 11 is more direct to Romans 11. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. In other words, did you catch it? Who is in my debt? Who, who has given me something that needs to be repaid? I am the Almighty God. Where were you when I made this world? And where were you when I bestowed and dispensed all the things of the earth? I'm in no one's debt, says Yahweh. I'm in no one's debt. Beloved, this is our infinite God. An infinite God cannot be in anyone's debt. There and here, worthy to be praised. For Job, for ancient Israel, for the church today, we offer words of glory. What else can we possibly offer in light of who God is and what he's done? The last verse of this chapter and section before we close it is this. Not just our infinite God, but our imminent God. And by imminent, we mean close. So close as to be within or to indwell, as the word means. Look at verse 36. For from him... And through him and to him are all things. Three positions, from, through, and to, all centered in who? God. All things, that is all creation, all things from, through, and to him. This, beloved, is not new. You've heard this before. The enduring testimony of the New Testament and the gospel. You've definitely heard this before. Consider with me 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. It says this. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we, from whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Look at chapter 11, verse 12. Listen to this. It says, All things are from God. Same refrain. Acts seventeen twenty-eight. In Him we live and move and have our being our infinite yet close God, our imminent God, the Father, even as we've just heard, our imminent God, the Son. Hebrews 2.10 says it this way, it is for Christ and by Christ that what? All things exist. For Christ and by Christ. What a statement. And then, of course, you know Colossians 1. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. This is Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Our imminent God in Christ. This is not pantheism, by the way, which teaches that the universe is God. This is God in the universe and every part of it. This is Psalm 139, and you know this. David said this in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. God is not a distant deity. Infinite, yes, and and distant, but you know he's inaccessible. No, that's false religion. Other religions believe that. The psalmist understood, as Paul does here, that our God is imminent. An infinite God, but an imminent God. Close. Beautiful. Finally, the heart of this doxology is at the end of verse 36. It simply says this, to him be glory forever. Amen. That's the final word, the final glorious word of the first half of Romans. Glory ascribed to God. Hence, the goal of this letter emerges at the end of chapter 11, doesn't it? And if possible, if you've been tracking in this study, if possible, it takes us one more rung higher in the plan of God, doesn't it? So while life from the dead is the goal of God's plan, again, not your salvation or mine or Israel's or the Gentiles of the church, the final cosmic renewal, if that is the plan, the plan's terminus, we might ask the plan for what purpose? Why? Why would you do it, God? Why a plan for cosmic renewal? Why the trouble? Why the pain and process? Again, verse 36 to him be glory forever. Amen. To him be glory forever. Amen. God's glory forever. That is why. That is why. That is the purpose of God's plan. The glory of God. It was Charles Ryrie that said, and I agree with him, the purpose of history is doxology. The purpose of all things is the glory of God. I agree. In other words, over and above and through, everything that has ever been fueling the creation of the universe, upholding the redemption of the universe, is one thing, and it is this, the glory of God Almighty. That's it. Yes, indeed, Paul. And together with him, we say, to him be glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Beloved theology, God words, can never be separated from doxology, glory words. That's the whole of Romans 1 to 11 right there. And beginning next week, we will see that while right theology must lead to right doxology, so too, follow me, right doxology must lead to right which simply means this, right practice. Right practice. And right practice or gospel of God practice is exactly where Paul turns next. He doesn't just leave it there and say, you know what, and then go live your life the way you think you should, in praise to God. No, audaciously, the apostle says, this is how you live the doxology. It has terms. It's a standard. And it's strict and rigid and I believe for some we won't like it. The Christian's daily life and practice comprises the second half of this letter, and I might submit to you, it's glorious. How many of us lived life our own way, with no way. And Almighty God came in his mercy and said, here's the way It's glorious, isn't it? That's where we're going, Romans 12 to 16. Fasten your seatbelt with me, it's fantastic. We begin that study and application next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious word. Oh, Lord, what a privilege it is here at Westmount to study your word. Lord, we are undeserving of these things, that we can open an eternal word and even apply it to our life. Oh, God, help us to do so. Let our doxology match our theology, Lord, so that our practice can be in line with both. God, help us, we pray.